I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Hello, my friend. How is my flight safety detective colleague today? for another podcast that we are recording. I just got back from uh, a whirlwind trip to some real hotspots in uh, Nebraska and California. I'm coming back through Denver to change clothes before I go on another whirlwind trip to Florida, Georgia, Washington, D.C., and who knows where else. So I just wanted to know, how you doing today, John? I'm hanging in there. i it's a beautiful day today in Massachusetts. I was out for a ride a little while ago, ran some errands. So it was uh, a very enjoyable day. Yeah. Are the are the leaves starting to change yet, or is it still summer? No, it's the leaves are changing. They're actually falling off at a rapid rate. It's unfortunate. We've had such a, a drought going on that the leaves are not going to get very vibrant, and they're, they are just going to fall off as soon as they change color. Yeah, that's, you know, it, it, we jumped here in Colorado from uh, summer to winter. Now we're kind of back to summer this week. Who knows what's going to happen next week? I mean, it's just crazy. And I think the weather around the country is about the same. It just, uh, I've got friends of mine down in Alabama who are still shoveling mud and sand out of their, uh, the first story of their house and their house is up on stilts. So, I feel for those folks. The water level in their neighborhood was up uh, above 20 feet. So, you know, when we think about them down there, I've got friends, you know, there, Pensacola and other places. So uh, we're always thinking every time a storm comes into that area, um, you know, the heartache on top of now this pandemic. So it's just uh, it's crazy for them down there. So, yes, weather is causing problems everywhere today. Global warming, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think somebody's going to study this, you know, with all of the weather patterns, the temperatures and the fact that we've had all these extremes, especially in California, where it's been so hot and dry. And of course, the whole state, unfortunately, is burning down where I was up in northern California. There were fires all around us and stuff. And it's just uh, it is one of those things where who knows when this is all going to end. Hopefully uh, the snow or the rain will start flying and, and help put some of this stuff out. So anyway, so of course, uh, during the course of my travels, a couple of interesting things. First, you and I have been talking about uh, some of the passenger safety briefings I have experienced while I'm sitting on the airplane, especially the key part of 
what you do with your personal mask when the oxygen mask falls in the event of a loss of pressurization. And of course, you know, I brought up the fact that one of the uh, the airlines I've been flying on quite regularly wasn't addressing the fact that you got to take your personal mask off to put the oxygen mask on so that you're going to get some oxygen flow. Because if you try to put it over your personal mask, you're going to be sucking nothing. Well, it was quite interesting because I was on one of their flights recently. And, of course, they deferred to the automated briefing that is the one on the TV screen. And it still, of course, refers to what's on the printed safety card, which is just the general run-of-the-mill briefing. However, when the video stopped, it was interesting because the flight attendant came on and then added a caveat, an addendum to that, saying that while this particular briefing addresses this situation, please be aware that you need to pull your personal mask off before you put the oxygen mask on. So I don't know if somebody at the airline is listening to our show or somebody got to them, but uh, I found that quite interesting and I'm glad that they clarified that because we got an email from a captain who said, eh, it's just logical you would pull that mask off. And as we both know, it isn't logical. People don't speak English. You got kids who don't understand. You got people who don't understand because they're first-time flyers. So, I mean, you have to spell a lot of these things out in great detail. And common sense and logic don't necessarily go hand-in-hand with everybody that gets on an airplane. It doesn't go hand-in-hand that everybody flies an airplane. Yep, that's that's very true, too, John. Yep, and the... uh you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about my uh, it being in line yesterday at a self-service gas station and watching. And it was actually somebody that was a very senior citizen that got, drew my attention initially and having such a hard time trying to pump gas. And then I started watching. It was a big station. There was eight rows of people in line. So I started watching them. And uh, I'll tell you what. 25 to 35% of the people trying to pump gas didn't understand it. Had trouble. I see one guy just standing there with his credit card in his hand trying to figure out what to do with it. Now, I, when I went up, I looked at the directions and the instructions that were on the pump. I mean, it was only three lines. He must have stood there for six minutes looking at it. I don't know what he was looking at. But, but other people uh, put the nozzle in and didn't squeeze the handle and just standing there. <laughs> I, I, you can never, you can never assume that everybody knows. And you know, how many times have we pumped gas in our life? You know, you get up there and yeah, sometimes you put your credit card in, you got the stripe the wrong way because some pumps want you to have the stripe on the left side or the right side or whatever. But you find that out through trial and error when you slide it in and it doesn't do anything. You turn it around and it works. Other people, I mean, it does amaze me that it is relatively easy. It's basically a three-step process, actually four-step because you got to answer a question of whether you want a receipt or not. But stick your credit card in there. It says you want a receipt after you put in your zip code. Select the type of gas and stick the nozzle in and pull the trigger. Yep. No, it's and that's why you. I always talk about it. Assumptions and expectations in aviation and a lot of times in life will hurt you or kill you. I mean, you just you can't assume that the other guy is going to do it 
the way they're supposed to do it. Well, how many times have we had gone to crashes for uh, corporate airplanes and they didn't give the briefing? Remember when I can remember when they didn't even have to give a briefing. You're right. Right. And it was only after umpteen people died that the government finally said, you know what, you got to give a briefing. Yeah. And now, again, you have people who are flying on business aircraft and it's starting to ramp up because of COVID that the use of private aircraft, both corporate business charter plus privately owned, you know, smaller general aviation type airplanes are becoming more prevalent since COVID because people want control of their environment and things like that. So now you've got a bunch of people that are getting on an airplane who really don't understand. It's not necessarily like the airline because you get on an airplane, the interiors are all tricked out. So what's on one G5 isn't the same interior that's on another G5. And if you're flying one of the services like a NetJets or, or somebody like that where they're using multiple airplanes, even though they may be a G5 or something – the interiors are different, and, and you really have to become acquainted with that because in a high-stress, high-anxiety situation of a serious incident or accident, you don't have time to think. you got to react, and you got to react properly. It's not easy in aviation today. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, the FAA and Boeing and Airbus want cockpit standardization. I can remember a, a, an airline taking off from Los Angeles with an airplane that wasn't standard. I don't know. They must have picked it up someplace used. But anyway, taken off out of L.A., he put his hands up to turn off. Uh, uh, must have been anti-iced. And he turned the engines off because the shutoff valves for the engines were up in the overhead instead of down on the pedestal. Yep. Hate when that happens. Yeah, fortunately, he was able to get it lit. It was a wide body, so those engines are not uh, very forgiving on relights. But fortunately, he was able to get one of them relit. And we see those kinds of, you know, what looks like either an insidious or benign type mistake. We see that. And that is one of those things that in the long list or long chain of events that take place are that sequence of events or at least supports a sequence of events that results in in that serious incident or accident. American 1420 that I was the investigator in charge of down in Little Rock, Arkansas back in 1999 was one of those accidents where there were a series of events, some of which were major, a couple of them were minor. And because they were all stacked on top of each other in a very short period of time, it led to a catastrophic event during a landing at the Little Rock Airport. You know, I was looking at some of our emails today, and uh, I'm to throw one out here. One of our international listeners says he loves the podcast, and he loves listen to, listening to our, our Lion Air dissection. Yeah, lost for word. The dissection of that report, he would like us to do that for Ethiopia, which we plan on doing. Yeah, and in one of the comments that I've seen regarding that was people writing in saying, well, you were too light on Boeing. You didn't hammer Boeing. You should have hammered Boeing. If you recall from that podcast, you and I had a brief discussion before that, that while this wasn't 
intended to be a discussion about Boeing and the FAA and that relationship and the design issues and that kind of thing. What we tried to do was take the Indonesian final report and demonstrate their inadequacies, their deficiencies, their contrived probable cause, and use their own information to basically attack the credibility of their report. Yeah, you and I agree that there are issues with Boeing and there are issues with the FAA, and they will continue for some time. And of course, Congress just put out their their report. Again, I don't agree with everything because I think some of it was mischaracterized, some of it was politically motivated to try and drive a point, but that's here and they're there. But our intended purpose for dissecting the Lion Air report like we did, just like we're going to do with Ethiopia, is to look at those facts, conditions, and circumstances. We can get into a discussion about designs and, and corporate policies and, and the relationship between the regulators and, and the manufacturers in another podcast. But I guarantee you go in and look at Airbus and the DGCA or the DGAC, you're going to find similar issues. You go down to Brazil, you're going to find the same types of issues between Embraer and their regulators. It happens everywhere. We can get into the minutiae, but that wasn't the intent when you and I dissected the Lion Air report. And again, we don't intend to really attack anybody other than the facts and the way they're presented by the federal authorities who did the investigations, and we're going to do the next one with Ethiopia. Right, and I have all the Boeing problems uh, on my list of items, but we need to let the dust settle a little bit because I, I had it high on the list several months ago, and then we had all the revelations with the uh, emails, and it changes the whole flavor of any podcast we do on Boeing as the manufacturer of the product and their shortcomings. So we need to let let everything get developed before we start talking about it. Yep, exactly. It is a trying time, and, and right now air travel, air safety is kind of in limbo. I am extremely disappointed once again at the NTSB. I mean, it is just disheartening every time I go out to do my job now is an independent accident investigator on accidents that I'm being called on that occur basically, you know, within a day or two, I'm getting a phone call from people associated in some way, shape or form with that particular airplane or the people on board and asking me to go out and do an investigation because the NTSB isn't going out. And in some cases, the FAA isn't going out. And I think it's a disservice. I just think it's a travesty that general aviation has taken a back seat. They're the bastard children in aviation safety right now at the NTSB. The board's willing to put a whole team together and fire them off on, quote, a major investigation. But you have, a, I mean, just in the last six days of this podcast, we had four accidents. We basically, the three that I know of, we had two fatal, two serious. We had four fatal. We had two fatal and then another four fatal. When you look at all of that loss of life and the board has put out on their Twitter, yes, the NTSB is investigating. However, the board is not traveling to the accident site. I just got back from an accident that I'm working where two people were 
killed. Two were seriously injured right after takeoff. The NTSB said, we're not coming. The FAA said, we're not coming. And the NTSB delegated their accident investigation authority to a city airport manager who has zero credentials as an accident investigator. He went out there. He choreographed the first responders going out. Yes, you can recover the victims. And then within two hours of the accident, the wreckage was scraped up out of the accident site and taken to a storage facility. Who collected the evidence out there? Wow. Where's the AOPA? Where's, you know, in fact, we have their, their safety expert on the board. Where's his voice? I know. Yeah. He was the one that was, you know, such a voice, you know, with the Air Safety Foundation at AOPA, jumping up and down and dissecting accidents and, you know, throwing his two cents around. And these investigators, John, you and I have talked about this. These investigators are trained in biohazard. I mean, if I can go out there and be safe and do my job, why can't these investigators who understand biohazards go out and do their job? Because all of this great factual evidence that needs to be collected disappears. Yeah, it's perishable. Exactly. And if you don't have the right person who has a level of knowledge on how to do investigation, how to collect that valuable, perishable data, it's gone forever. And you're not going to recreate it in a storage facility four months after the accident. These same people that are the investigators who are sitting at home collecting a government paycheck, they can't go out on an accident. But I guarantee, you know, dollars to donuts that they are going to the grocery store, they are going out to eat, they're going to restaurants, they're going out in public. If they can do that, why can't they go to an accident seat? I just think it's a travesty and a disservice to those families who are suffering the loss or suffering through with their family members or their friends who have been involved in these serious accidents. And I guarantee you the quality of these reports is going to be unbelievably bad. Missed opportunities, and it, it's, it is it is just so painful to think about the, the missed opportunities that we could have for trying to fix some of this stuff. Well, the National Transportation Safety Board has safety in its title. How do you promote safety in general aviation if you don't go to the accident scene and you can't develop if there is, in fact, a safety issue whether it's a one-off or a systemic problem, that needs to be addressed right now so that we don't have future accidents. How do you do that? You cannot do that from your house. You just can't. It's just sad. And, and for them to say, well, we'll launch on a major, but everything else we're not going on. I mean, if I was a family member, I'd be raising hell with my congressman and this chairman of the NTSB, you know, hiding behind COVID and saying, I mean, come on, really? There are other government people out there that are working. Yeah, the FBI, ATF, they're all out there anyway. Of course, yeah, of course they are. Yep. Well, that was my rant, but it's just annoying to see a safety organization not taking in an interest in safety. It's just, it's sad. So, what's on tap, my friend? Well, let's talk about 1420. Okay. 
Well, I do a quickie on the emails. We got somebody that wants us to go back and and uh, look at Hoot Gibson's seven two seven Great Adventure. Oh yeah, yeah, that'll be an interesting one to talk about and the aftermath. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll have to do that one. That'd be a fun one to dissect. Yes, and of course we had somebody give us some attaboys for the Heinz crash. Yeah, the uh, I, I got a couple of responses from folks who. As painful as it was to listen to us talk about that midair because they had some association with that particular accident, they appreciated the fact that we were able to give a little bit of backstory that they didn't, they weren't aware of, and we we're able to present it in a way that they could understand. Unlike you know trying to understand it reading one of the reports. Yes. Okay. Let's get into fourteen twenty. So you were the you were the IIC. This thing happened late at night, early morning, actually. Yeah, they were pushing midnight when they started the approach. So in Washington, it was already 1 o'clock in the morning. And the bell goes off. You get a phone call. Why don't you talk about that? Well, I was on duty. We had a rotation. And at the time, you know, there was a, a standby list for 15 of us at the NTSB. And, of course, the bell went off and phones ringing 2 o'clock in the morning. We have an accident. It's at Little Rock. It's an MD-80 crashed during landing, and um, we have fatalities. Nobody knew the exact total. Aircraft had burned after impact, so we knew there was a post-crash fire. First responders are on scene. So we got all of the preliminary information. The FAA was able to give us some details with regard to the approach, some of the information that the flight crew had been provided by the controller regarding weather conditions at the time. There was a uh, severe thunderstorm moving through the Little Rock area at the time that this particular flight crew were making an approach going into Little Rock. They attempted to land on a runway that was facing east, and during the course of landing on the runway, they overran the runway, went off the departure end of the runway into the overrun, struck the stanchion that holds the localizer antenna, which the localizer is part of the precision landing system equipment, the ILS, struck that antenna. And then because the airport is built up on a bit of a plateau, because the Arkansas River sits below it, the aircraft had enough energy to then go over a retaining wall and the catwalk, we call it the catwalk, but it's a steel structure that goes out for several hundred feet that has approach lights mounted on it for airplanes that are landing on the opposite runway during low visibility conditions. This airplane had enough energy to go over this retaining wall, get airborne or stay airborne, and get into this catwalk steel structure. That's what really did significant damage to the airplane and really caused the loss of life besides the post-accident fire. So we knew that kind of information. We didn't have a lot of detail, so we had to assemble the team. And again, we launched the team from Washington National Airport. The FAA took us down in one of their aircraft. We arrived on scene basically first light. It was early in the morning, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. And I think one of the, the interesting things was we were at the hangar, 
we were in the little waiting area waiting for the crew to put us on the airplane and they had a bunch of TVs on. And of course, all the news media was carrying this. So we're, I'm watching it as well as the team trying to get an understanding because they were showing pictures and stuff and using the video off the TV, just watching TV gives us investigators an idea of what we're going to have to work with once we get down there. So we're watching that. And then the vice president of flight operations for American Airlines is holding a press conference. And of course, reporters are asking questions to this guy. And he said, yes, it's our understanding that the NTSB, Greg Fife and the team are coming down to do the investigation. We're going to participate and cooperate and do all of the, the things that are necessary to conduct this investigation. So then he opens it up for questions. And one of the questions from a reporter was, well, based on the weather conditions in this thunderstorm and the rain and the wind and everything else, why would your pilots try to land there? And he didn't have a lot of words to that. That would be part of the investigation. We're going to try and find that out. And then their follow-up question was, well, given those weather conditions, if you were flying the airplane, what would you have done? He said, and he said, I wouldn't have been within 50 miles of the place. <laughs> that right there, of course, we all look at each other like, I can't believe he just said that. Well, of course, we get down there and we, we develop how bad the weather conditions were, how fast moving they were, and what role they played in the eventual outcome of the accident. So we had some basic information, John. We got down there. We had the team assembled. Fortunately, the aircraft was readily accessible. But one of the things that, and, and we'll talk about this, but there were a number of things that we found out with communication not only between the air traffic controller and the pilots, the pilots, you know, amongst themselves, but between the air traffic controller and crash fire rescue at the airport. And so these are the issues that we eventually really ferreted out and developed during the course of that investigation. I remember talking to you, I think it was at the end of the first full day, but it may have been the second full day. And you were telling me about the, uh, the fire department, the chief the fire chief and how unhappy he was with air traffic control over the communications glitches. Why don't you expand on that a little bit? Well, this was one of the first key points of this investigation. Originally, the airplane was going to land on runway 22 left. So that's basically landing in a southwesterly direction. But because the weather had moved in, and if the pilots had continued on their flight path to get lined up for that runway, it was going to take them well into this uh, thunderstorm that was moving into the area. So they talked to air traffic control, the crew does, and they asked the air traffic controller, hey, can we land on runway four right? It looks like that end of the runway is still clear. So the controller clears them and so gives them a vector back around to make a visual approach to the runway. Now, there's a whole backstory to how this whole flight originated with uh, the captain who was the chief pilot for American Airlines Chicago base. He had 5,000 hours in the airplane, very well experienced. He wouldn't have been the chief pilot if they didn't think he had that kind of experience. But this was a proficiency flying trip. Like a lot of management pilots, they don't typically fly the line. They'll fly a flight or several legs of a flight or trip to maintain their proficiency. 
He's paired with a brand new first officer. This first officer did come out of the charter uh, ranks. So he was an accomplished pilot, but he wasn't an airline pilot. So he got hired. He was in what they call IOE or initial operating experience. So now he's flying with the chief pilot to finish up his IOE time before he's turned loose to fly with line pilots. They take off out of Chicago early in the morning. They fly to Salt Lake City. And of course, they get to Salt Lake City and they're sitting there on a, on a bit of a weather delay because their next leg is into Dallas. So they finally get into Dallas. And when they get to Dallas, of course, the weather's starting to go down there. Their inbound airplane is late. They're sitting around. They know that because the weather is closing in, they're going to have to really make some quick decisions. So they start looking and talking to dispatch saying, hey, instead of us sitting around for two hours waiting for our airplane, is there another airplane that we can use? Dispatch says, yeah, if you get down to this particular gate, you guys get everybody loaded up on this airplane. You can get out because if you wait any longer, the weather's going to close in and you're not going to get out of here. So they hustle everybody down. They get everybody on the airplane. By now, they're pushing a long day. American Airlines has a 14-hour duty time limit. Well, starting at 7 o'clock in the morning in Chicago, Central Time, and then coming around the horn, by the time they got everybody on airplane and headed to Little Rock, they were bumping up against their 14-hour duty day. Now, when you add their wakeful time in, that is how long they had been awake before they actually went to work, got on the airplane, started their trip and everything, you're starting to look at fatigue as a factor. And we know from previous accidents that fatigue has a bad influence on pilot decision-making. And that was one of those issues that we explored in this particular accident. So now they're racing not only the clock, but they're racing the weather because the weather was starting to close in. There's this proverbial term that's been used associated with this accident called the bowling alley. And basically dispatch says there's two thunderstorms out there, two big storm masses. You know, you're going to shoot this gap or shoot the bowling alley to get through it, to get the Little Rock on the other side. Because if you miss this window, you're not going to be able to get there. So, of course, the crew is now under a lot of self-induced pressure to do a lot of things. Race the clock, race the weather, get themselves in a position to land. And as they get into the Little Rock area, the weather is really starting to close in. This thunderstorm had blossomed late at night. They could see the lightning. They're painting it on their weather radar. They're talking to the air traffic controller about it, and they're going to try and get into Little Rock. And I think a couple of very important things, John, and I know that we talked about just summarizing in this podcast the accident itself and then waiting to our next podcast, a subsequent podcast right in sequence to dissect the CBR. But I think a couple of very important points is that this crew, again, this is the, the captain who he's just flying for proficiency. So he's not flying the line every day. You know, he may fly, he's flying basically once a month. He's got a brand new first officer who in his IOE period, flying with the chief pilot, he wants to, to show that he can do it. He can do it right. He's going he's gonna to be there to be helpful. So that turned out to be a bit of a combination because you got a first officer who is trying to impress and do things and help this captain. And unfortunately, by trying to do that, some of the decisions that were made 
were influenced by those actions and those decisions weren't necessarily the right decisions. Yeah, see, you know, and, and it's easy for us as investigators to say all that at the time, but if in the decision-making process, if pilots would just take an extra minute and think about what they're doing, give it a chance to settle in instead of making a spot decision and moving on to the next item that needs a decision, that uh, maybe some of these accidents could be prevented. And, and what we found when we got out, you know, finally got established on scene down in Little Rock and all the groups started doing their work, when you look at the information they had, the weather information that they had, it was obvious that this was going to be one of those touch and go situations. There wasn't a lot of margin for error. And as they got closer to Little Rock, things were getting worse to the point where the weather study showed that in fact there was a microburst that blew down the hangar doors on a on a big uh, maintenance facility. When you have a, a microburst of that intensity that blows down the hangar doors, it's a pretty good shot. And of course, you got convective weather, you got lightning, and of course, you have a, a big rainstorm. One of the things that was of concern to the fire chief was the fact that when the airplane was on approach now to runway four right, the controller was giving the crew voluntarily, just providing the crew with wind updates every 10, 15, 20 seconds. <laughs> you don't normally get that out of controller. Normally you call and say wind check and they give you the wind. But I think I call it hinting and hoping. I think the, the controller was trying to be proactive, like here's the wind. We have microburst happening. We have wind shear happening all over the airport because they got low-level wind shear alerts at the airport. So the controller was giving the crew that. I think he was hinting and hoping. He was giving them the wind and hoping that they would go away instead of try to land at the airport based on his wind because he can't tell them not to land. So, of course, the crew continued the approach. Now, the, the approach was, was rocking and rolling to the point where they lost sight of the runway, which is unstabilized approach. You automatically go around. But they tried to salvage a bad situation. They stayed with it. When they got visual contact with the runway again, they were not only right of center line, they were right of the runway. And they talk about it, and we'll talk about it when we dissect the CBR. They should have abandoned the approach at that point. But the captain stayed with it. And when they touched down, of course, they lost control, went off the end of the runway, off the departure end of runway four right. Well, when the controller saw the airplane touch down, he lost them in the rain shaft that was moving across the airport. So he never saw them again. So when they didn't come back on frequency and he didn't see the aircraft, he immediately called the fire department, the uh, crash fire rescue folks. And he said, basically, we lost an airplane on the approach to runway four right. And that's basically all he said. So of course, as soon as the crash fire rescue folks jumped in their vehicles, where did they go? To the approach end of runway four right, because the words were, we lost an airplane on the approach. And so they just assume, okay, they're at the approach end. So they go racing down there. Of course, there's nothing down there. There's no airplane. There's no evidence of an accident. There's nothing down there. And they have visibility problems. They have major visibility problems because it's raining like crazy there. So visibility is, you know, almost nil. 
They can't see the other end of the runway. They can't see that there's a fire blazing at the other end of the runway from this airplane. So they get in their vehicles and they're driving very slowly down the runway in this reduced visibility because they don't know if the airplane's on the runway, off the runway, where it is. And as they're driving, of course, it's taking them a very long time to get to the other end. They don't come across any aircraft, any wreckage, nothing until they get to the very end of the runway. Several minutes later, they start to see tracks going off the end of the runway. They see some damage. And of course, they can see the glow of the fire. And people are now walking up the hill, mingling all over the airport that have come out of the uh, the aircraft. They start to see these people. Well, of course, now they know where the accident site is, but they're up on the plateau of the runway and uh, runway environment. This airplane had gone outside the boundary fence. Now they had to try and figure out how to get down there because there was a fence separating them. So they had to drive halfway around the airport, go through a gate to access where the airplane was. It was it was a loss of valuable time that when the board studied it from a survival factors point of view, of course, you know, the, the delay in responding may have cost lives or, or at least incurred more serious injuries than were necessary just because of the delay in responding. And what the fire chief was concerned about was the fact that they were given bad information. And that's why I preach it all the time. You and I have talked about it. And that is you have to pick your words carefully, whether you're a pilot, whether you're a mechanic, whether you're an air traffic controller trying to direct somebody somewhere. Because in this particular instance, it was basically bad phraseology that put first responders at the wrong end of this airport. You know, I was back in Washington and we really expected uh that there would be an emergency recommendation coming out about the phraseology. Yeah. And I know that was keeping you busy over and above the actual investigation of of the event is trying to coordinate that and determine whether or not we needed to put out an emergency recommendation. Those kinds of things have happened in the past. I mean, the the well-meaning people, hey, we had a crash. Great. Where is it? (laughs) You got to give me some good information so I know where I got to go. Um, I know that we've had accidents in the past where the air traffic controller says, yeah, we lost the airplane on the go around and it's crashed. Great. Where do you want me to go find this airplane? And in fact, some in some of these cases, the airplane was off the airport property. It crashed just beyond the, the boundary fence and the information wasn't well presented. And you get people responding, but they're responding to the wrong place or they can't access the accident site because uh, there's no way to get there through the boundary fence. And we saw that, in fact, in Charlotte with U.S. Air 1016. Yep, remember it well. They were talking about driving the trucks through the fence. Yep, and we'll have to do that one, too, at some point. It's a crazy time when the team gets on, on scene. There's a lot of things going on for the investigator in charge. You're the band leader, you're the choreographer, and you're trying to take care of a lot of different things at one time. And while you do have group chairmen who you can offload some of the work to, you still have to coordinate this. And then, like you said, John, if there is an issue that pops up, how critical is this issue? Do we have to address it now? Does the FAA have to get an emergency 
airworthiness directive out because it affects flight safety? Does the safety board put out an emergency safety recommendation to get people's attention because this is a, a critical flight safety issue in the event of an accident? So you're you're having to deal with that. You're depending on your group chairman to to do a lot of work very quickly and do it right. And there's a lot of pressure on everybody. Do we or don't we? And that was one of those issues besides trying to manage the rest of the investigation. You got the politicians out there that, you know, want to know everything and they want to know it now. They show up, they make demands, they want to go look at the accident site. You know, they want to stick their nose in there for a photo op and all of these things. And it's just painful sometimes being the IIC because, uh, you know, as well as uh, you want to do, you got to go deal with stuff that just takes you away from the job at hand. Yes. Yes. You know, so, I mean, this was a this was a, an accident that when you look at the people that are involved and there's always a backstory, John. We know that, you know, I mean, airlines are a mode of transportation to not only those of us who utilize it for business or, or pleasure travel, you know, the, uh, the Joe run-of-the-mill person, me, you, whatever. And we know that high-profile people also fly on the airlines and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you don't find out the backstory until something tragic like this happens. We saw in ValueJet that when you start looking at the manifest of value jet, you're looking at people such as the starting running back for the San Diego Chargers was on that airplane. We know that there was two federal marshals on that airplane with a federal prisoner in a high profile case. And in this particular instance with Little Rock, little did we know that one of the passengers who was part of a college choir would then go on to become a pretty popular country music singer. So there's there's always these backstories, but regardless of who it is, the NTSB has a, a mission and a responsibility to do a thorough and methodical investigation so that everyone, regardless of what your stature in life is, can benefit from the development of safety recommendations and, of course, solutions to either isolated problems or systemic problems that could potentially or do cause issues with flight safety. Yeah, and, and the families, the pain for the families, you know, that first and foremost, in the eyes of the, of the investigators, you've got to separate the pain you get because by, by the end of the first day, family members have shown up. Oh, I mean, American Airlines did a great job with their care team. You and I both know a, a bunch of the folks that, that uh, are on that team or were on that team, some of which participated in the investigation process as well. They did an outstanding job trying to handle all of the families and that kind of thing. One of the interesting notes is the fact that after the accident, because there was so much time after the accident for the first responders to get there, People evacuated the airplane. It's raining like crazy. The airplane's on fire. They're disoriented. They have no idea where they are. And they're walking all over. We had people actually walk up to the adjacent road and get on buses and go home. I had to get on TV the next day and ask people who were on this airplane to come back to the airport and report in so that we knew whether or not 
they had survived because people had left the accident site. They were that disoriented. And the river was right there. I mean, a misstep, they could have been floating down the river. Correct. And so we had to account for these folks. So these are the kinds of things that, you know, the first 48 hours of an accident, especially something like this, you're going every which way but straight. You're trying to rein people in from getting too carried away. You're trying to be methodical. You're trying to be very confident in in the process, in the direction of that process. And so, you know, these are the kinds of things that a lot of people don't see. You can't read about it in a report. All you see is what the team has developed based on their investigative activities, but you can't see it. And as you and I have talked, and we'll talk about again when we dissect the CVR, and that is there's a lot of emotion involved and emotion from the, the victims in the back, of course, the flight crew members that have survived. And when we read a cockpit voice recorder in a report, it's just words on a piece of paper. It's another thing to actually listen to the cockpit voice recorder because it's that emotion. It's those voice inflections. It's the, you know, whether or not these people are nervous or or jovial or, you know, disengaged from the tasks at hand or really plugged in and something else is going on. So these are the the critical elements of any investigation that we depend on. And fortunately, on big airplanes, we have cockpit voice recorder and a flight data recorder. We don't have these same luxuries in general aviation and in some levels of business aviation. And so now you have to try and superimpose, if you will, based on the investigator's experience, what possibly is going on during the course of these particular flights where you don't have good fidelity in the data that you're using. Good morning, you're on the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up Delta Juliet. So at the end of the first full day there, did you have any other May days other than the you know, communications issue between the tower and the fire department? There were a number of issues that started to pop up, of course, the survival factors aspect of it. We had several people ejected out of the airplane. So the question was, how did that happen? Were they properly restrained? Were there any issues there? When we started looking at the cockpit, just the physical evidence, there was evidence that the flaps may not have been properly set, which we had to ferret out. We also had to worry about some issues that developed because the marks on the runway clearly demonstrated that upon touchdown, the airplane was basically out of control right at touchdown. And so the question was, was there a mechanical malfunction or failure that led to that loss of control on the runway or was some other factor such as the weather an influence on causing that loss of control? I actually have that written down for to question you about that uh, after we go through the voice recorder or during the voice recorder, because it ties some of the systems that we're concerned about ties back into comments in the cockpit. Correct. And, and of course, you know, the human factors elements, as we really started to get into the crew, the fatigue issues, the decision-making about this, you know, why the crew would go into weather like this, there were several disconcerting comments made by the crew that will ferret out you know in the next podcast but these comments really took some of us investigators back like why would they do that why would they say that why wouldn't they you know take this course of action and these are the kinds of things that 
really improve aviation safety because in the very end, we developed, because the board investigated another event in close proximity in time to Little Rock with another American MD-80 at, I think it was Reno, Reno, or uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Reno, where they went off the runway as well. They had an issue there. So we started looking at checklist usage, training, and a variety of other things because those elements ended up projecting themselves in this second accident. Those are critical. And while they don't sound like much, yeah, the crew, you know, they didn't do all the items on a checklist. You miss one item on a checklist like this particular crew did, and they don't verify, that's the difference between life and death, literally. Yep. Decision-making, following procedures have killed a lot of people. Yeah, and a lot of skilled people, a lot of very accomplished aviators. This isn't, you know, for the faint of heart, if you will. Uh, I mean, these are not newbies. These are seasoned pilots. This captain was a former Air Force pilot, very disciplined, very structured. He's the chief pilot for American Airlines. But some of the decisions that were made based on the information that they had, I mean, we all kind of like, why would they keep doing this? Why didn't they do something else? And in fact, as we find out, they never talked about any kind of alternative action. And that, I mean, (laughs) coming from the chief pilot, I mean, I was taken aback by it, I think, like the rest of the investigators were. Yes, I remember 1016, the Charlotte accident we just mentioned. The captain, who you and I both know very well, he briefed before they landed what they were going to do. If they ran into trouble with the weather, they knew exactly what they were going to do before they needed to do it. And then they didn't follow it. Yeah, right. And the question is, why? You just talked about it. (laughs) And, And you don't follow it. And in this case, they never talked about it because they had no reason to talk about it, I guess, in their world, because there wasn't going to be a point B or a point C. They were going, you know, right to to their target. You know, that's the trouble with these schedules. And I don't know what's going to happen now that the airline business is turned upside down. But for many, many, many years, I saw pilots that were coming in at 11 o'clock at night, getting off the flight, and then I, I worked midnight shift. I would see them in the morning showing up for a trip to leave. Yeah. Well, if you remember, John, back in 1994, when I was working on the special study that the board put together, where we were looking at a variety of different, quote, commuter airlines at that time, before they turned into, quote, regionals, where we were looking to take all these little 135 commuters and bump them up under 121. One of the things that we found in that special study was the fact of these short overnights. You'd get people that were coming in, you know, they get to the hotel at midnight. You don't fall asleep at, you know, 12, 15. I mean, you wind down. By the time you get to bed, it's 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, and you have a show time at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning to get back on an airplane and go fly. And fatigue is a huge, huge issue. And when you start bumping up against your crew duty time, that's one thing, because there are policies that allow you to exceed that limit under certain conditions. But you got to look at wakeful time. you got to account for, well, what time did the captain get up? If he had a seven o'clock flight and he lives in Naperville and it's an hour to drive to the airport, 
that means you had to get up probably an hour before that. So now you got to add three hours or four hours to that. And now he's been awake for 16, 17, 18 hours. And we all know how you feel when you've had a long day. So those are the kinds of things that influence decision-making and pilot performance. And in this particular instance, and I characterized it a number of times in this accident, they saw the airport, they were going to accomplish the mission. It was get their itis. It's right there. It's right there. <laughs> you know, it's so close. That's why we're going to go there. And unfortunately, when they got there, the conditions weren't conducive for a safe operation. Well, this is a good point to take a break because we, we're butting right up against the voice recorder and I want to be able to have an, enough time to do a good job of taking, the, taking our audience through the voice recorder step by step. You and I love to get on these discussions and we know that our listeners like to, to hear us talk about this, but we always appreciate the feedback that we get when we do these dissections, you know, hopefully, you know, you'll learn a little bit more. We try to give you some of the backstories you'll never read in a report and that kind of thing, just to give you an understanding that there is more to these investigations than just showing up, kicking tin and going home. I mean, there, it's a very complex process. It is a very daunting process to do it right. There is always information that's being developed, not just on scene, but throughout the course of the investigative process as a whole. So we, we always appreciate, that's why we appreciate the, uh, the emails, people telling us what they like with regard to the accidents that we dissect and, and the way we talk about it. So keep the emails coming. We really appreciate it. You can always send it to us at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. John and I are going to be responding to a, a load of emails that we just recently got. Of course, uh, you can follow us on our website, we try to post pictures and, and that kind of stuff about the things that we're talking about. You can give us the feedback through there as well. And then I think that one of the, the big things that we appreciate the most is the fact that we have an increased following worldwide. And so we would always appreciate you giving us a good rating, uh, what you like, because that helps us continue to grow our podcast. And we're going to be talking about one of our major sponsors, Avemco Insurance, who has come on board with us because they like the way we talk about things, address safety issues, because this is all about education. And those of us in aviation know, just like a, as a pilot license or even a mechanics license, uh, an AMP certificate, these are certificates. These are licenses that give you an opportunity to learn more. You don't shut down after you get it. You're constantly learning. And as an accident investigator, John and I are continually learning. Why? Because we have to. We, we go beyond our limits. And, and I think that's the way you, you need to go in life. And that is stretch your limit. Learn more. Go beyond what's comfortable. And we as investigators always have to do that so that we understand what's going on. So we try to pass that on when we talk about these accidents, that there's more than what meets the eye, just a report. So we appreciate all of your feedback. John, I, I can't wait till, you know, we stop this social distancing of four, 1,400 miles and get back in the studio because uh, I really want to start doing 
YouTube cast. And you and I have been working on trying to figure out how we can best do a, a Zoom cast, which I think we're getting close to. So I'm all excited about that because I think we owe it to the audience to give them more than just you and me talking. <laughs> I agree. I agree. You know, I've, I've had some conversations, additional conversations with Avemco as we put together the program. They are sh certainly some fine people. They are really, and they're concerned about the people that they insure. They are very concerned about, you know, they're not chasing the dollar. They're concerned about what they're, the pilots and the passengers on those airplanes. And uh, they're really encouraging us to, to get into the minutiae and help the GA pilot understand those factors which cause the problems, such as decision-making and fatigue. And we will be covering a lot of that as, as time goes on. But I'm really, really pleased with, with the way that the, the Avemco people have approached the safety issues. I've been a, a long-time supporter of Avemco because they've insured many of my airplanes. And they've always given me service. I've had a couple of problems with my airplanes with other pilots who have flown them. They have never balked at, you know, handling the situation, doing it in a timely manner and getting my airplane back flying. So I greatly appreciate that. So we're looking forward to working with them and, and really budding this relationship because there's a lot for us to learn from them as an insurance carrier. And of course, we want to address situations that they see from the losses that they have to deal with so that we can address them and educate pilots and and hopefully you know we all learn from uh, from each other what excited me about having them come on board was i'm the one that's been doing the research for these accidents that we, that we talk about and the ntsb has not done a very good job of investigating ga accidents for years so the data is missing so we have to go by what we know what we've seen and you know we've we've talked to the investigators that did the work but it didn't make, you know, it was a single person, single investigator that was there. He wrote it up and the way it went. But we had talked to those people ourselves as peers. So we know some of the stories that they talked about that didn't make it in the reports. Well, having Avemco now being able to give us a whole list of those types of accidents is going to help us a lot better to be able to, to notify all the pilots of the circumstances around the event and what we think might help prevent that from happening again in the future. Couldn't agree with you more, John. No, that's, uh, that's what it's all about. And in general aviation, the data doesn't have the fidelity that you would typically see in a large major investigation, whether it's done by the NTSB or even in the FAA's database. The fact is, is that general aviation is a big part of aviation here in the United States and in good parts of the world as well. But the information that we talk about isn't regional. I mean, if we talk about an airplane, whether it's being operated here in the United States or over in China or Canada or Australia, it all applies. So that's what we're looking forward to is dissecting those kinds of accidents and really getting into the weeds with the details so that everybody can learn. Because uh, I'm learning every single day, every time I talk to new people, pilots, mechanics, everybody else, because everybody has their own way of doing business. And it's quite unique in some cases. Oh, yes. You know, in fact, one of our international listeners wrote about standard operating procedures in the cockpit and checklists and all of that. There's variations in commercial aviation. 
when you get out of the commercial aviation environment and get into business jets and GA aircraft, the checklist is always whatever the pilot wants to do. And even though the manufacturer may have a checklist, we saw that in the crash right up here in Massachusetts with the Gulf Stream, where they didn't even run the checklist. And he hadn't run the checklist for, I forget, 170-something flights out of the previous 170-something flights. He only ran the checklist a couple times in, the, in all that period of time. Yep. I mean, really, those checklists are, are there for a reason. People have made mistakes. You can't remember everything. Even though we think we can, we can't remember everything. And we skip a step because something interrupted us. And inevitably, it's not the one that says turn on the reading lights. It's the one that says turn on the anti-icing because you're going to be taken off in crummy conditions. That's the one that bites you. Absolutely. No, it's, it is. It's one missed item on a checklist, and I got a bunch of examples. So as we get into the uh, CVR dissection of American 1420, I'm going to talk about not only what the crew missed and, and failed to verify when they were prepping to land this airplane at Little Rock, but also a couple of uh, investigations that I've done where one missed item on a checklist resulted in a loss of the airplane. Yeah. I got uh, several at the airline level about uh, missing the fuel quantity. I was involved with several of those. So it's, uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of that to talk about. I mean, look at, the, look at how many GA airplanes crash every year because of lack of fuel. How basic can you be? One year when we had 18, while I was at the board, we had something over 1,800 GA accidents, and almost 600 of them were lack of fuel. I mean, that's just... Nope, I, I know. It is, and, and you and I have already talked about how, you know, general aviation pilots running out of gas. How do you do that? So, yeah, we get a lot to talk about on future shows, John. I always look forward to talking to you about the things that we love to dissect and, and educate folks on. So I will leave you with the last word before we get into our next podcast. Okay, so the next one is going to be on the CVR for 1420. And to everybody out there listening, please stay safe in your personal life. You know, wear the mask, wash your hands. Let's get this thing behind us. Hopefully the vaccine will be here by the end of the year. But that doesn't mean we let our guard down. We need to continue paying attention to the little things to prevent this thing from spreading. And also to stay safe in your, in your flying career. Please don't take any shortcuts. Follow the procedures. They're there for a reason. So please stay safe both in the air and on the ground. And if you get the opportunity to help us with our patron sponsorship or any other way to sponsor us, there's a million ways. We would appreciate it. Putting these shows together is far more expensive than I ever thought. With that, I would say again, just say safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.